0: Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm health Co I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Hello, good day. How are you? We have an announcement we are introducing something a little fun into our podcasts each month, a monthly swag bag giveaway. Yep, that's right. Each month, which will be the last episode of each month, we are going to be giving one lucky listener, a monster swag bag of goodies that will include products from our sponsors and some co merch. How do you enter? Simply send us a letter outlining what you loved or learnt from the DermHealth Co. platform and share a little about your skin empowerment journey. It may even just look like what skin empowerment means to you. We'll choose one lucky winner each month and share your story on the podcast. Simply email info at dermhealth.co. Can't wait to hear from you. And just as a little side note, this is only open to Australian residents. The word LASER is an acronym, and it stands for Light Amplification by the Stimulated Emission of Radiation. Well, unless you work with lasers, that might have just blown your mind, and you might be thinking, is this podcast for me? But I must tell you, it most certainly is, because when I wanted to speak about LASER on this show, I couldn't think of anyone better than Dr. Davin Lim. You may have come across Davin Lim's social media, his YouTube, and he's gained such traction over the years because he has this innate ability to break really complicated things down and make them simple and easy to understand for anyone. Dr. Davin Lim is an internationally acclaimed cosmetic and laser dermatologist, and he's been voted in the top one percent of aesthetic specialists worldwide for 2016 and 2018. He is an expert in laser management of acne scars, pigmentation, and vascular conditions. And he has special interests in the fields of laser dermatology, acne treatments, chemical peels, which we also cover today, cosmetic injections, and skin cancer management. Over the last decade, Davin has published in international journals and presented at international conferences and meetings, with more than 20 credits to his name. He's worked for companies such as Elegan, Galderma, as well as numerous laser companies. And I started by asking Davin what he thought was the biggest misconception about lasers.
1: I think the biggest misconception is one laser can do the whole lot. Yeah. And some people view lasers as Swiss army knives. In other words, you buy one and you try to fit every single skin condition that you can think of in that. And I think part of that fault is probably the laser, I guess, industry itself. When they sell someone a laser, it's a big capital investment. And then they teach you ROIs, so a return on investment based upon your capital purchase. I think the biggest mistake is trying to fit just about every single skin condition you can think of, whether it be hair removal or pigment or vascular or resurfacing or acne scarring or wrinkles, try to do it with one device. It doesn't happen that way.
0: Do you think that's partly because there's these small businesses that may be have over invested so they feel like they need to get more bang for their buck?
1: I think, but look, at the end of the day, I think it's not the uh, fault of the, I guess, business, yeah, or, or the operator. I think it probably comes down to the industry itself, as in the company. And time and time again, we see that, you know, for, for, for I guess, because when you buy a laser, it's a big capital investment. Yeah, you're looking any, anything from, you know, minimum of about 50,000, 60,000 for a good laser, all the way up to a quarter of a million. And in order to sell stuff like that, generally speaking, uh, <laughs> when the, when the company's sales or the sales rep comes in, they show you a spreadsheet. And then that spreadsheet has a return of investment. And basically, it's to treat as, most, or as many skin conditions as practically possible with that laser. So, And then that gets passed on to the person who buys the laser, the operator. And then that gets passed on to the consumer. So I think it's not the fault of the laser operator or the owner, but I think it's probably the business way of how they sell lasers to clinics.
0: Yeah, interesting. So it's coming from the top down.
1: Coming from the top down, definitely, yeah.
0: So talk us through your career. How did you get to do the things that you're doing today? It's been a long journey, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it's been a long journey. And um, I think like, much like many, I guess, blokes or boys, I like stuff. I like doing stuff. Yeah, very good with my hands. And it was ever since a kid. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is, like to say to everyone, yeah, it's a, it's a dream come true when you can actually shoot someone in the face with a laser and get paid, <laughs> get paid for it. Cause yeah. so, <laughs> some pain. Cause some pain or blow things up, yeah, because legally. So my, my interest basically stemmed when I was at uni. So in my, I think, six year, I did an elective in, in Durham. And I, it's actually in Sydney. And at that stage in the late 90s or mid 90s, laser was coming on board. So that's when the CO2 lasers started coming in. And then from there, I thought, man, you know, wouldn't it be cool to do this for a living? And I was lucky because I kind of graduated in, in when, when lasers were taking off, yeah, when fractional lasers were taking off around the 2004, 2006 uh, era. So I basically did my derm in my primary in Sydney. Then I went to Ireland for two years. I did some registrar training there, which is awesome. <laughs> and then came back to Brisbane, uh, went back to the UK for a year, escaped the politics in Australia, then finished in Brisbane. Then after that, did my subspecialty around Asia and the US, both surgical and laser. So like I said, it's been a long journey. I don't regret it. It's actually really good. It's really fun. <laughs> and then everything went from there.
0: Wow, so a couple of decades later, and you 're still <laughs> loving it
1: Yes. Yeah. well, like I said to everyone there 's no finish line with this, yeah, like the Nike slogan, there is no finish line because you know in I guess procedural dermatology, procedural work, there 's so many new stuff, whether it be fillers, lasers, you know different devices, energy devices, neurotoxins, a whole lot, and it 's a changing landscape, and i I embrace it, I find it interesting, some people find it joy, I find it really interesting. And, yeah, career went from there.
0: Amazing. So today we are really diving deep into LASER, which is mm-hmm. one of your specialties, something that you talk a lot about across your social media and educational content that you produce. What actually is LASER?
1: Well, LASER by definition, it's it stands for Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation, LASER. Basically, it's monochromatic light. In other words, a light in one wavelength, concentrated light in one wavelength, and that gives a biological activity. In other words, if you shoot it in tissue, it does something, (laughs) so to keep it simple, the majority of lasers are one wavelength, um, but now we have, uh, I guess, in the future, we're gonna have hybrid lasers where you're firing two different wavelengths. So um, that's by definition what, what a laser is, yeah, and we're looking at the tissue interaction, so we need a chromophore or a target to hit, and in tissue, there's different targets. For example, there's red, which is, (laughs) there's pigment which is your melanocyte or or melanin and then you have your collagen your elastin and that falls under water yeah so each of these uh, laser wavelengths has a specific target that's why i was saying it's very hard to use one laser and target everything because even with the duration of the laser with the pulse duration in other words the time taken to deliver the energy the spot size the fluence which is the power of your laser and your wavelength they all give a particular tissue interaction. And that's what I was telling you about in the beginning when people tried too hard to use one particular wavelength to treat as many conditions as possible.
0: Mm, absolutely. And for those that may have only heard of laser as kind of marketing from their local salon or clinic or, or skin clinic... Yeah. When Davin was talking about different types of targets, these would depend on what the condition is, right? So if, for example, you're going in for hair removal, the the target would be that pigment in the hair. If, for example, you're going in for redness of the skin, then it would be the the red or the hemoglobin of the blood. So depending on what your condition is, this wavelength then needs to be specific to be able to target that, whatever that target is, to then effectively... Blow it, up.
1: <laughs> yeah, blow it up or, 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 or cause enough lights. heat yeah. to coagulate <laughs> and destroy it yeah.
0: so we hear a lot about lasers and ipl what is the differences there
1: mm, so ipl i mean it's a broad word yeah so we can call it ipl intense pulse light uh intense pulse light or um, bbl which is you know through the cyton device and that's broadband light so as the name suggests IPL is basically light, concentrated light, and we use different filters, yeah? So we can use uh, filters for pigment, filters for vascular, um, skin tightening filters. So unlike laser where it's monochromatic light, IPL is a broad spectrum of light and using filters, for example, if you're using a wavelength, it's not one particular wavelength, it's a variance of wavelengths. And this is where IPL, like we were talking about, it comes, IPL is basically like a Swiss army knife, yeah, so it can do a lot of things. It doesn't do one thing exquisitely well, maybe for freckles, but that's about it, but then it does many things including things like hair removal and vascular and pigment and all we do is we swap the different filters so it's like i said to to uh, as an analogy it's much like the swiss army knife you can use it for different things but the instrument itself is not usually great for one thing
0: do you use ipl
1: yes <laughs> so, yeah. look you know with ipl first were probably popularized in early 2000s with the uh, luminous system yeah and that's a luminous quantum. I think that was the first commercial IDL. and, and <laughs> believe it or not, that was the first device. Yeah, whether it be laser or energy device, which I started off with in, in the mid two thousand. And it's still a very good device. It's still very handy for not not for the treatment of like you know hair or or what have you, but like I said, freckles. It does really really well for freckles, and for patients who want just a generalized rejuve So they've they've got, for example. Pigment from the sun, not not melasma though, but pigment from the sun and a little bit of background vascularity. Certainly, IPL can be uh, very handy. So the answer is yes. We, I still use it, even though even if I had the device like the Quantum IPL, even though it's, it's two decades old, it still does the job. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting when you've got different tools in your toolkit and that understanding of the mechanism, then you can determine what is going yeah. to be best for different patient concerns. Yeah. But as you
1: know, IPL should never be used for hair removal now that we have, um, you know, specific lasers, um, because we really want to get to that hair follicle in, in as short time as possible and not not promote regrowth or villous hairs yet or fine wispy hair. So, you know, I think IPL had its day for hair removal, but it should not be used nowadays.
0: I'm just interested to know in regards to hair removal and these newer devices that are claiming that they can treat vellus hairs based on targeting their hemoglobin. Have you seen mm-hmm. any efficacy in this?
1: No, no, I haven't. And I know there's, there's been many theories about you know, treating vellus hairs, including the use of, for example, topicals that that the hair itself absorb yet. Yeah, and as a result, you've got a chromophore within the uh, within the follicle itself where the area could bulge or where the hair follicle germ cells are. And Many different techniques, many different ways over the past, you know, decade or so. But I'm yet to see a good, you know, study that shows that it can be it can be achieved. Yeah, um, replicable achievement of results. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I think it's hard. Yeah, Villous hairs are hard, and that's why I guess you know, electrolysis and all that can come in, or even eflonacoid, which is your inhibitor of growth enzymes for your hair follicles. Yeah.
0: Mm. So let's talk about the different types of lasers. There are many. Let's just kind of keep it to some of the main categories, because what we often hear about would be things like lasers for hair removal, pigment, which are you know, non ablative, but then we have things that are ablative. So literally they are vaporizing tissue. And then also the more healing type lasers. Are you able to talk us through the different types? And then we can kind of go through the application and risks of each.
1: Yeah, I reckon the easiest way to think about it is actually think about the target you're going to hit. So if you're looking at brown, you're going to hit melanin. And with the brown lasers, you're looking at the Q-switch lasers normally, yeah? So either Q-switch lasers in the nano, which is the most common wavelength, or most common pulse duration, I should say, or the pico lasers, which are the newer lasers, which can treat different types of pigment, including things like melasma, skin rejuvenation, and tattoos. So that's brown. When we're treating red, we want vascular lasers. And the vascular lasers uh, are great for things like rosacea and uh, capillaries, spider veins, birthmarks. And they're not, in the mili- they're not in the nanosecond, the pulse duration. In other words, the way they deliver the energy is over a slower period of time because the target we want to hit is larger compared to pigment. And these lasers are many different wavelengths, yeah? So when we talk about wavelengths, we're wavelength-specific so everything from 532 to 595s, or the long pulse at 1064. So many different vascular lasers, but the most common are the ones that are, for example, pulse dye lasers, yeah? And then if you're looking at ablative you know, lasers, which actually you know, blow things out, <laughs> you can look at ablative and non-ablative. So ablative lasers, basically there's only two. There's a CO2 and the erbium, and that can be delivered in fractional, in other words, small amounts that hit the skin, Or fully ablative, the whole skin is basically treated and then when we look at non ablative these are the things that spare the upper part of the skin but try to treat the dermal aspects like the collagen and the elastin and and things like that so that's I guess a summary a broad summary of lasers which is I guess you know more clinical based rather than the actual wavelength base because I think if you're basing things on wavelength it can get a little bit more complex
0: Yeah, of course. And then low-level laser, is that something that you use clinically?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, low-level laser, it's more of a buzzword, yeah, because actually the low-level laser called LLLEDs, low-laser light-emitting diodes, which is basically like an LED and that term, I guess it was coined maybe about 10 years ago, um, I think by the Koreans, here yeah, in, in a meeting uh, in the U.S., and that's basically using uh, wavelengths, which are almost monochromatic wavelengths. That's why they, they call it low-level laser, is because we're using LEDs. But by definition, an LED is not a laser. <laughs> it's just, I guess... I could say it's probably a marketing term that they're using instead of saying, Oh, you've got the LED, like the LED that you find in your frigging car. (laughs) It's like we're using low level laser. So, those ones can help with a few things. Yeah. So, when you're looking at blue light, it can help with acne. When you're you're looking at orange and red light, it can actually heal tissue, also treat acne. And then you have the things like the the heel light and all with the uh, diodes, the A30 diodes, and that can improve blood flow and improve healing times. So, I use that. Regularly, in fact, every day we use it to treat everything from, like I said, acne, and some of them actually cause a biological reaction. For example, with your red and blue light it can activate your porphyrins, which is you know your PDT or photodynamic therapy. So there are many ways to employ these devices. Everything from healing to actually treating or even killing skin cancer.
0: Interesting. And if we go through each a little bit more in detail, I'd like to hear more about the who, what, why, some of the risks of each category. And you've spoken about some of the applications, but maybe just some kind of patient requirements for each
1: yeah, yeah, another words, I mean, laser, I guess it's simple to understand. You need a good contrast. For The bigger the contrast between normal skin and the target, the better the result generally and the lower the risk. So, for example, if you're treating red, you don't want much brown there. In other words, for patients who have a red, for example, rosacea or spider veins or birthmarks, we want the background as pale as possible. So, basically, you're treating red on white, not red on brown because... Lasers, even though they're smart, sometimes they pick up the background noise, yeah, and the background noise is basically pigment. So one of the biggest dangers of any laser is basically post-inflammatory pigment changes. So that's more common if you're out in the sun, if you tan a lot, if you're, you know, certain ethnicities like myself, you know, being Asian or, you know, Central American, Latino, they all have higher risk, which means our parameters need to be more conservative. We need to be very, very accurate with how we deliver things in the pulse duration. And most importantly, yeah, most importantly, patient factors as well. So that the patient has to be sun smart with things. Don't go in and get a suntan before a laser. Don't get a suntan after a laser. And basically have a lot more caution compared to someone who's got type 1, type 2 skin, who's, who's more fair. So the biggest side effect that we see is probably skin color changes. And that can happen with Q-switch lasers as well. Because when you're using Q-switch lasers to treat pigment, the laser needs to differentiate between your normal pigment, which is basically your constitutional skin type, and the target they want to hit. And the target could be, like I said, melanin, excess melanin in your skin, or it could be pigment in your dermis, for example, tattoos, or even melanin in in the dermis when it comes to dermal conditions. So once again, you need the contrast of skin color for that laser to actually work effectively, but also safely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of things that I'd like to ask. One is ablative lasers back Mm. in probably, I don't know how long before I was definitely kind of practicing, but this full ablative facial where people would be then wrapped up like a mummy. Are we still seeing those types of practices?
1: Yes, unfortunately. I mean, I still do at least two, sometimes three per week of these procedures. The only reason is where we practice a dermatologist, for example, in Queensland, San Diego, we all lie in the same, I guess, of the world, yeah, same, same latitude. And with the immense amount of sun damage that we see out here, especially in Queensland, a lot of patients are still a candidate for that archaic, um, really, I would say it's even cruel, yeah. And, and each time I do something, I like, oh my God, you know, it's... Uh, it's such an archaic way of treating skin. But there is no other way because we're using fractional laser, for example, or if we're using the fluffy stuff, yeah, whether it be RF or RF because microneedling or even PRP microneedling. It's not going to treat the, pe- the people who've got really, really bad sun damage. So we're, we're talking about people who've got broken collagen, really, you know, elastosis that's or, or broken elastin and collagen, skin laxity, that's well beyond their age. And then also, skin think cancer-associated changes, yeah? So we're looking at actinic keratosis, solar keratosis, and possible even early SCCs. And believe it or not, there's still a heap amount of people, even though we, the government and, you know, social media and a lot of us, all our colleges emphasize the use of sun protection and sunscreens and being sun smart, it's still not getting through to people. Yeah. Most of the patients I see still, you know, they're in the, for this procedure, they're in their fifties to seventies, but I still see younger patients yeah, in their forties and early fifties who still don't look after their skin. And unfortunately, this is one of the only options, sensible options, apart from deep chemical peels that can really make a difference. So, ablative lasers are still very relevant uh, depending on where you live.
0: And that was actually kind of answered my second question, but that is being up in Bris Vegas, I, I know you've worked all over the world and you have connections with germs, you know, all over the world and in Australia. Are you finding that certain applications of laser are done more? in other areas as compared to, say, we're in Melbourne? Like oh, yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. So I did my uh, some of my vascular laser training, very fortunate, with Prof Beck or Associate Prof uh, Phil Beckle, Very smart guy and probably the world leader when it comes to vascular. When I'm down in Melbourne, you know, seeing my colleagues or, you know, doing some work with them, either you know, Prof Goodman or, or Prof or very different patient demographics. Yeah. <laughs> we don't see that much change when it comes to, really severe elastosis of sun damage. But what you have in Melbourne, because of the cooler weather, you have a lot more rosacea. So even though rosacea accounts are probably about 10, 15% of my work, when I see Phil and when we do a clinic together, literally 50% of this clinic would be rosacea. So in Melbourne, I think the top lasers would probably be vascular lasers just because of the rosacea out there. And then in Queensland, I think the top lasers we use either the pigment lasers, the Q-switch lasers, or the fractional ablative/slash non-ablative, and that's just because of the sun damage.
0: Mm, that's really interesting, and it kind of makes me think about obviously everyone having such individual skin, individual concerns, people react or respond differently, but that also comes into demographics where actually someone is situated and. I'm wondering how often that is actually considered, especially when we're seeing, and this is a little bit off the topic of laser, but when we're seeing more types of services that are doing online consultations, topical skincare is now being able to be, be purchased anywhere online. Yeah. And like, what do you think as far as not considering the patient demographic? Is that yeah, something I, that's kind of gone through your mind?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, because the most important thing, I guess, is if if we... Practice in an area where there's less UV, even with seasonal changes, you know, but when it comes to stuff like topicals, we certainly know that sun exposure for things like retinoids and alpha hydroxy acids that can cause reactions. Yeah. So I guess being relevant to where you geographically are located is very important, Yeah, and that's just using it, skincare for lasers. Like I discussed before, I think that's even more so, yeah, because we can reduce, markedly reduce the amount of side effects based upon the exposure of environmental factors like UV. So just giving give you an example, one of the major things we see, or I see a lot, is melasma. And melasma is one of those conditions where it's dependent, you know, 90% of it is dependent not on the techniques, it's dependent on patient compliance. So treating melasma in a country, for example, like uh, Northern Europe, so so much easier than trying to treat melasma in you know december january february in brisbane slash goldie yeah because especially in people who love the sun <laughs> so i think it yeah, love like what you say it makes a lot of difference whether it comes to skincare whether it comes to lasers when it comes to chemical peels geographic i guess location very important
0: yeah, and I wonder if we're going to see some issues popping up because of these services that are making the world smaller but not necessarily considering where someone is living and the environment that they're living in.
1: Yeah, certainly we do see that a lot with skincare, yeah, um, because like I said, the the as you know, nowadays with the availability of cheap skincare, you know, from companies like The Ordinary, inky List, Paula's Choice, all of those, they're, they're giving super powerful ingredients, <laughs> you know, things like, more potent retinol, uh, very potent skin acids. And there's an increased trend for very, very potent lactic acid, glycolic acid, salicylic acid. And yeah, like I said, people who are just willy-nilly just picking their product choices and exposing themselves to UV, that's when you get bad reactions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, we've talked about the different types of lasers. I'd like to talk about the regulations in Australia. I know in Bris Vegas they're a little bit different to other parts of Australia, but yeah. are you able to give us a bit of a rundown?
1: Yeah, I mean in Bris, Bris Vegas it's actually very lax here. Yeah? So, yeah, it's very lax. I won't go into the politics of why it's very lax, but but from uh, <laughs> what I understand <laughs> from... <laughs> That's oh, okay. Man.
0: We're we're about skin care and skin health here, not politics. So no, I appreciate well, that. <laughs>
1: look, I, I think I think it doesn't have to be as draconian as something like Western Australia, whereby unless the rules have changed, but from what I remember in WA, even for HR the hair removal, doctors have to perform that. Is that your understanding still? Or Yes. Yes, yes. It is, it is. Is so i don't i think it's gone from one you know when you look at state to state it goes from one extreme to the other uh and for for wa i think that's yeah i think it's just way too strict and then for queensland i think queensland's not too bad the laser licensing however is i think the laws pertaining to that is very lax here because when you get your laser license um i think the way it's worded in queensland it's hours attempted hours rather than actually hours practiced (laughs) so you can you can go to practice for for eight hours you may may see see your help one or two cases but there's your eight hours in your logbook from what i understand so
0: interesting i did not know that
1: yeah, that's why i was saying with the politics, yeah. Because I used to be a, an advisor for uh, Queensland Radiation Health uh, probably about six, seven years ago. And they were inundated with a lot of work, as in a lot of licensing work, because at that stage, the podiatrists they only had two of them, yeah. To be fair, that they're really underfunded. And they only had two people looking at licensing. And they had literally hundreds of applications per month. And at that time they were looking at a licensing the for the long pulse 1064 for the treatment of fungus. So they had just inundated with, with work at that stage. And sometimes the yeah so sometimes the licensing I think can probably be better improved in Queensland. It's, I'm not saying it should be changed. I'm just saying the licensing and the way it's accredited should be yeah should should be better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now in regards to the manufacture of laser. In relation to safety, efficacy, we know that there's, uh, because there's kind of no regulation in terms of who can operate a laser in many states, there's also not many regulations as to where a laser comes from. So what's your experience in seeing lasers that might not be from reputable sources? Yeah, good, bad, ugly.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I say, there's there's very little, if not no, regulation. If something's going to be TGA approved, however, uh, in Australia, uh, obviously that's a long process. It's a very expensive process for the uh, for the importer. However, uh, we see a lot of other devices that can be sold without TGA approval, and this doesn't make sense because you get a lot of devices from other companies, uh, other countries, yeah, including mainly China, and it's not only through the, uh, I guess, through, through the local sources. In fact, one of the sources is eBay and Amazon. So you can buy yourself a, a switch laser there or even a long pulse laser And for bugger all, yeah? So you're probably looking at between $2,000 and $5,000, if that. Sometimes it goes to as cheap as 600 $700 US dollars. So these are freely available on the internet. And I guess it's an irony because when you look at these wholesalers or, or these online sellers, they prohibit S four medications, yeah. So you you know, you can't get any hypertensive, but you can buy yourself a hugely powerful laser that has you know if someone doesn't know what they're doing, you can easily blind someone or cause significant uh, morbidities and injury, or even things like hundred percent TCA. So I think apart from consumer awareness, I think the regulations need to be looked at at a bigger picture uh, rather than just at the state to state and say you know oh you shouldn't buy this, you can't import this. I think things like the big resellers, you know, like I said, eBay, Amazon, all those guys, (laughs) we need to actually clean up the act, yeah, because that way there's less patient uh, morbidity with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what about in this time during COVID? We've seen an increase for retailers selling these at-home IPL-type devices, namely for hair removal and such.
1: Mm. I think that there are, I man. there's so many at-home devices, whether it be, like we mentioned, the low-level laser emission devices, you know, even people like um, Neutrogena are making these LED masks. Things like that super safe, yeah. Whether they work or not because they don't deliver the required energy, that, that's a different matter. But these devices, I guess, from, from the bigger companies are super safe. When it comes to at-home IPL, majority of companies their fluences or the power is just not enough to cause damage so I guess from my point of view it's do they work probably not do they cause damage hopefully not yeah it's hard because like I say there's there's an increased amount of at-home devices I've trialled quite a fair few uh, from from companies which (laughs) which give me stuff and I haven't found any to be very effective Um, but then when you're looking at things like, I guess, patient satisfaction or the feel-good factor, that's totally different, yeah? Because the patient may, or someone, the consumer, may bite and go, well, you no, know, I really like this because it's warm on my skin. And if that's what they're after, and they're happy with that, then by all means, um, that device can be considered successful, yeah? Uh, but from where I'm concerned, when it comes to at-home devices, there's very little that, that actually has good clinical efficacy.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. Because while there's certainly results based facials and chemical peels and lasers and such, there's always going to be a place for that spa facial that is all about the massage and the relaxation. So I understand what you mean about that patient experience at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you just look classically at the skincare companies, yeah, yeah, even the big skincare companies, when you look at their Instagram, you look at their website pages, you don't see many before. And you hardly ever see any before and afters. If you do see a before and after, generally speaking, it's a strong peel of some sort, um, like you know, lactic acid or, or glycolic slash you know, citric acid peel. When you look at all the big players, including things like uh, you know Neostrata or, or, or Neutrogena, when you look at the pages, it's all happy people, all cheery people, you know, really happy about their skincare. But you never see good before <laughs> and after photos. You love it. Sometimes you see a peel, and then sometimes you see acne. But then with acne, you can clear it up just using diet anyway. So it's. Um, You know, I think that feel-good factor that you're doing something, some ritual for your skin, that can't be overlooked when it comes to skincare, yeah.
0: Yes, it's like a lifestyle brand, really.
1: It is, it is. And I think a lot of these companies, it is a lifestyle brand, yeah, because if, if there's real efficacy with things. There'll be so many before and afters, yeah? But I think they've really tapped into the, hey, you know what, let's get these people into a ritual and they can apply their, you know, day cream, night cream, eye cream, (laughs) moisturiser, sunscreen, toner. Let's see how much we can sell. So I think that part of the industry, yeah?
0: It's an interesting viewpoint as well that it is seeing it for what it is, and that is like a lifestyle type brand.
1: Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's just I think I, I get I get caught up with that sometimes. Well, obviously not with skincare, but you know, like when I'm <laughs> doing certain things, you're doing. Geez, you know, when you, for example, whether you're polishing your car or whether you're putting you know fertilizer in your aquarium or garden or what have you. Sometimes you do stuff because the company says, "Oh, I'll do this, this, and this, and this," and you go through these steps, and at the end of the day, oh, cool, that feels good. <laughs> Whatever it does, stuff. Or not is is a different factor yeah and you've probably wasted a lot of time but at the end of the day it's your feel good factor
0: yeah I completely understand. So are you able to share maybe a couple of stories where things have gone wrong? Um, Maybe someone's come into your clinic. They might have had some kind of treatment elsewhere. It might have been with either a reputable or unreputable place. No names, obviously. But yeah, tell us about some of the things that you've seen just to, I guess, increase people's awareness about the risks of laser and not going to someone that knows what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's all about risk-benefit ratio. So <laughs> even with my consent with patients, I give them the risk when it comes to, to lasers. So, uh, for example, the uh, the most common, by far, the most common is actually flare-up on melasma. We probably see that at least once a day, sometimes three, four times a day when patients come in from other clinics, uh, and even myself yeah I, I think i just laid up on melasma maybe two weeks ago because clinically it, it was very subtle to begin with and we look back at the phones and go oh that could be melasma could not be melasma next thing when when you do a, a high-fluence laser you just go oh my god actually that was actually melasma so it even happens to me uh you know at least two three times a year but then a lot more common with other clinics because melasma is very hard to diagnose especially if it's very mild or even mild and if we use even low fluence lasers, something like, you know, clear and brilliant afraxal or, or, or one of those fractionated lasers or even things like pico lasers, uh, it can flare up the pigment. And when that happens, it, it's a medical treatment. It, it can be hard to treat. So the most common by far, by far, is actually flare-up of melasma. And I guess it's part, part and parcel because of, you know, back back to, I guess, what we talked about in the beginning with the laser industry promoting treatments using device, for example, like pico lasers. I know a lot of companies out there who manufacture the Pico laser, say so this is a treatment for It's unbelievable treatment for melasma. No, it's not. It's actually, it's actually adjunctive treatment. So the treatment for melasma is actually medical with adjunctive lasers and or chemical peels. So I think back to where, you know, the fault of the clinic or the fault of the patient, I think it's probably the fault of the laser company itself for, for promoting certain practices. Yeah.
0: Mm. And I also see a lot in the industry that when someone sees pigment, but they might not have a good understanding of all different types of pigment conditions, melasma is like this blanket, I yeah. guess, diagnosis as well. What do you kind of think about that? Like,
1: Yeah, no, I think it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, like on a day to day basis, we see you know patients with difficult diagnosis <laughs> to a point where. Even my nurses and therapists who have many years of training, I mean, they've got to come up to me. And then I've got to look at stuff, have a good thing. Because sometimes when you look at pigment, you go, oh, that's pigment. But there's many differentials, yeah? Like yesterday I saw a case where you've got background melasma, and then that's one layer. And then the layer underneath is basically lentigines, which is freckles. And then you may have a sed keratosis, which is an age wart. You may have a macula, which is flat. And then you have areas which are raised. And on the background is sun damage. So you know you basically have four or five diagnoses within that so-called pigment umbrella. And and basically you need a couple more, a couple of other treatment options rather than just one wavelength of light. Yeah. And it's also very important because the patient can't see, they think, oh, yes, everything's just brown. (laughs) But it's, I think pigment is one of the harder things to actually treat because you need to give the diagnosis. And worse still, If you have someone who's, you know, 40, 50 or what have you with with a lot of sun damage, you know, you you may think, oh, gosh, there might be a lentigo malignant melanoma hiding under there as well. So that's something which I'm always aware of. I mean, as a derm, you know, practicing medical dermatology and skin cancer surveillance early in my career, we see melanomas on a daily basis. And some of them can be really hard to diagnose. So this is always something in the back of my mind when, when I'm looking at pigment. Is it an atypical melanoma hiding in that blanket cover of pigment?
0: Yeah, I've got two questions. So first of all, for a client like that, what do you treat first?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the second, Correct. I want to speak more a little bit about skin cancer, but let's go.
1: Yeah. So I think that most importantly, you've got to ask the patient, what bothers you most? <laughs> and if they got everything, then obviously we appeal. The first thing is to peel back the layers. And the first thing is actually rate limiting is your melasma. So I always treat the rate limiting factor first, which is your melasma. If they go, look, you know, I don't like these and they it's lentigos or freckles then that's a big conversation because you go, look, you've got background damage here. If I use a particular laser, even if I'm successful at getting rid of these particular spots, I'm going to give you skin, which is basically brand new skin. And I often show them the inside of their arm and go, well, that's the sun-protected skin. I'm giving this on this. And it looks pretty bad because you've got white areas on the background of um, brown areas. So that's my way of explaining to patients is that the laser, if I treat a particular thing like a freckle or, or you know, a lentiger, and that goes, and I'm giving you new skin, it's on, a, on, the, on the background of pigment skin. So that way, I think most patients understand that, hey, you know, that may not be a good option because mm. I think the contrast in hypo, H-Y-P-O, hypopigmentation or lightening with spots is actually much more noticeable than hyperpigmentation.
0: Yeah. And then coming back to skin cancer. So it is, it has been a discussion that we've had a few times on this podcast Mm. and something that really errs me is someone goes and has some kind of laser treatment with no prior skin check at all with a practitioner dermatologist, dermoscopist GP. Mm-hmm. So do you think that should be something that's mandated in Australia to have to have skin checks prior to laser treatments? What are the risks involved?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's a hard one. Yeah, because I guess when you look at Australia and the amount of um, dermatologists out there, there's like practicing full time. I think there's you know, about 500, it's literally a handful, like 500 practicing full time dermatologists. And most of us have a really long wait list. And, I think from a practical point of view to have clearance by either a dermatologist or skin, skin cancer expert and to go well you know um your pigment is more than likely benign and then have a treat I think it's too much of an ask yeah because it probably it's good in theory but I think in when it comes to practical intervention it it's pretty hard I teach my girls the how, how I think a lot of us dermis practice is basically unless something unless someone's high risk, yeah, for example, they have a family history of melanoma or personal history of melanoma, um, things like that, most of the time they can go ahead and treat pigment unless clinically suspicious, yeah. Then basically referral to a derm is needed. The other rule which we follow and most dermis follow is that if we treat pigment and we're pretty good with the pigment-specific lasers. If the lesion recurs, it's mandated I need a biopsy. So for example, you treat in tiger, good settings, you get good frosting, everything should go. The patient comes back in three months' time, or you warn the patient, hey, if it comes back, you know, we need the biopsy. And then the lesion comes back within, let's say, 90 days, three months. Probably a biopsy at that stage would be important. So I think there's some practical aspects of treating pigment and then the I guess real world aspects, yeah.
0: Completely understandable. And yeah, just in the last couple of weeks i've had two people that have needed derm appointments but haven't been able to get in until like september so i completely understand that you are far and few between unfortunately (laughs) so you mentioned earlier that a common risk that you see or occurrence is hyperpigmentation and Mm -hmm. while often more often than not i guess it can be transient what do people need to be aware of do you ask patients to prepare a certain way when they're undergoing a series of laser treatments?
1: Yeah, it'd be 100%. I think the most important thing is your sun exposure, yeah. So most of my fully ablative laser procedures are done usually in the cooler months, like like, like now. <laughs> and I try to try to decrease that sometime in September October because... Um, the uv index is, is highest um, obviously in summer so the main thing is basically adequate use of sunscreen but it's just when you say sunscreen patients just don't use it properly it's very rare to have a patient actually probably one in 20 or so would probably use it correctly um, so we just hound that you know you, you gotta wear a hat you gotta wear sunscreen you know i try not to change your lifestyle because i think everyone you know from a practical point of view if you like going out if you like going out to the beach or if you like going out to the For example, just park with your your kids. I'm not going to say don't do that. I'm just going to say basically just be more vigilant with things. So patient education is paramount before laser and definitely paramount after laser as well, especially if you're treating sun-induced conditions, yeah?
0: Absolutely. Um, Do you get them on a series of topical skincare or is it really just that sun avoidance, sunscreen?
1: So ideally the wish list for us, (laughs) it's always a wish list for them, is that they use sunscreens adequately, they're sun protect, they use hats, they're very vigilant with that. Then they use your, you know, bleaching agents, for example, hydroquinone, you may trickle some retinoids in, retinol retinoids a couple of nights a week and go from there. That's our wish list, yeah? But I think from a practical point of view, if I can slowly change one of their lifestyle changes at a time, I'm pretty happy. So to answer your question, I guess with in the context of melasma, I always start off with the sun protection and your medical therapy, yeah, like your hydroquinone, your bleaching creams, your bleaching agents. In the context of sun damage, where you know we're removing pigment like lentigos, freckles, etc., I try to get them on a retinol or retinoid, probably about between three to six weeks after the laser. Yep.
0: Yeah. And I know that you've spoken on your social media and things about hydroquinone and being one of your favorite ingredients for pigment. Why do derms love hydroquinone?
1: Because I think it's probably the number one tyrosinase inhibitor. It, we're always very mindful, not really of the cancer risk, because I think with, with studies like that, I think it's you know, exaggerating their, the risk. Yeah, I think the biggest risk for us, I mean, the two things that we fear most is, is number one, tachyphylaxis. In other words, it stops working and it's the best compound for treating uh, melasma. And number two, when patients uh, use it too much and you get ochronosis, which is basically your dermal pigmentation, which is your paradoxical skin darkening. So we're very mindful of that. And I guess if we follow the, the rules and regulations of, of giving patients a break with hydroquinone, we can markedly decrease those risks. But it does happen, you know, I see an ochronosis once every year at least. And some of my colleagues see every month, yeah. So I think it's it's a very important risk that we need to mitigate.
0: Yeah, I just thought it's interesting because, you know, some people that I guess don't prescribe aren't derms, don't like hydroquinone. But I know a lot of derms do. So it is interesting to hear exactly why you like it. And obviously, you've got the knowledge to mitigate those risks or deal with the consequences
1: yeah i mean the, the other uh, flip side is that the patient population of which we see especially when i see with with the melasma generally speaking they've tried all the you know meladerm, melarase melacreme like all the stuff like uh, yeah your botanicals your licorice your arbutin, your uh, citric acid uh, extracts your bearberry, the whole lot yeah so they've tried all of that the kojic acids dazelic acid it's a list goes as long as your arm for all the Empty pigment uh, stuff they, they've used in fact my last patient last yesterday was exactly that basically six seven ingredients I just tried <laughs> so at the end of the day when they come here and they've got melasma you know I'm not going to put them back on stuff which doesn't work acknowledging however that all these other uh cosmeceuticals and especially botanicals they do have a role in rotational therapy for for pigment
0: So if someone first came to you, would you always go the hydroquinone over some of these topicals?
1: No, no, no. So so if if they've got just general pigment and certainly there's an option to use the others as well. There are some studies, but no really huge studies in regards to uh, pigment. Maybe with azalic acid, yes, and kojic acid. There's a few Japanese studies with that, and I still use those. For example, kojic acid, yeah, 1% to 2% kojic acid. still one of my favorite um, non-HQ pigment inhibitors.
0: Okay, great. And if someone is actually looking to undergo laser while in Victoria where can't do any of that right now but for the rest of australia perhaps who's someone that's looking to undergo laser whether it be hair removal some kind of skin condition what should they look for in a clinical provider
1: i'm a little bit more conservative because it, it, it's this i always think anyone can perform within reason anyone can perform a procedure obviously they've got good training the if i can extend it a little bit more Anyone can perform a procedure, but if something goes wrong, they should be able to, to treat it as well. Yeah, so, <laughs> just, I guess we're going to elaborate on that. You know, in my previous practice, they were talking about teeth whitening for as part of the services which we provide as a cosmetic practice. I was against that, yeah, markedly against that, because in 98% of the time, nothing goes wrong. But if, for example, something goes wrong, I have no idea how to fix it, yeah? And and I think the way I look at things is that if you're going to do a procedure, whether it be dermal fillers or, or laser or what have you, probably should also not only mitigate the side effects but have the knowledge how in order how to treat it rather than just refer on, yeah? So much the same like breast surgery or breast augmentation, you know, the difference between cosmetic physicians and plastics. And I know this is a sore point, but then the way I look at things is, yes, we can put in the implant, but if something goes wrong, we have a capsular you know, breakage or, or sepsis. What happens? Are you going to be doing it? Or is it going to be referred off to the plastics? Much the same way as what I perceive with most lasers. Yeah. If you do it, that's great. If something goes wrong, I'm here to help you because that's what I like doing. But then ideally you should be able to treat it as well. Yes, yeah.
0: I did ask my dentist actually about what they thought about these cosmetic whitening clinics, and yeah, it was interesting because they said, Well, it's all well and good to whiten someone's teeth, but what if they have they need any fillings? What if they've got other issues, gum issues? Yeah,
1: uh, that's absolutely. not
0: going to be recognized if someone's just going into yeah. a standard whitening clinic.
1: They bleach and next thing you know, they get uh, gingivitis or what have you, whatever side effects that are associated with it. Yeah, exactly. And and the flip side as well, and I know it's a sore point with um, dentists, is that I don't do root canal in my spare time, uh, lunchtime. I leave it to the dentist. It's just like when it comes to things like, it's a little bit different, yeah, because I think it's a pretty easy procedure when it comes to dermal fillers. I know some dentists are actually, you know, doing that, which is fine. But I'm just, I'm just giving an illustration where I, am sure I'll be able to learn how to, to do an extraction, a dental extraction, in the weekend uh, for most <laughs> patients. But definitely, I can't. <laughs> it's well beyond me for the difficult cases. And yeah, so that's yes. yeah, it's hard one, yeah, because you, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. But but I think that uh, we all have our. our specialties
0: if the Uh, tables were turned davin Lim dentistry yeah exactly
1: yeah i'm I'm a dermatologist but you know what in my spare time i'll pull out a tooth (laughs) or (laughs) two
0: so davin what do you think is going to be happening in the future of lasers
1: Look, I think if you, if you have a look at the market and have a look at how lasers develop over the last, I guess, 10 years, the most exciting thing, I guess, you know, six years ago was the pico lasers. And even then, um, that's got a very narrow therapeutic window. So, you know, pico lasers, unlike what the company advertises, is not the best treatment for acne scarring, further rejuvenation, pigment, melasma, tattoos skin tightening the whole lot. (laughs) And I think the biggest the biggest, biggest jump was probably that laser. And that's about six years old, yeah. Uh Son of Shore first brought it out with Pico Shore, I think 2014. And then over the past couple of years, you just have some hybrid lasers. What I'm seeing with the industry, however, is that lasers are actually getting less powerful. (laughs) So I've still got some of my old, old lasers, I mean things like the Ultra Pulse and the Cyton that's clocked. And they're, you know, some of them are 15 years old, some of them are like, you know, 12, 13 years old. Because when you buy a new model, usually um, the powers decrease. The Reason for that is that um, you don't sell, laser companies don't make money by selling devices to specialist dermatologists who specialize in laser, not at all, but they, they make money by selling lasers like you said, yeah, to, to a lot of the other clinics, whether it be a big franchise clinic or, or cosmetic physicians or even uh, nurses. And in order to, to be safe, they've got to actually limit the power of the laser, limit the capacity of what they can do. So unfortunately for me, I think when I, when I look in the future, I'm still holding on to my old lasers because I know I won't be able to get the power out of some newer lasers. And that's purely based upon safety, purely based upon safety. And even the hybrid lasers where you're combining two wavelengths in, into, into one delivery system, they're very conservative settings. For example, the Halo, you know, by by Cyton their maximum erbium ablative is 100 microns, uh, whilst my old system, it's you know, it's clocked to 1,700, nearly 1,800 microns. So you're looking at a laser that's 18 times more powerful. Do I use that power on a day-to-day basis? The answer is no, but then occasionally I do use it, you know, but I definitely use it more than, I definitely need more power than what the newer models have.
0: Wow, I wonder if anyone will identify that very small niche in the market,
1: yeah, I don't look. I, I think when when it comes to the you know, and this is why I look at I'm always I look at laser companies it's a little bit tarnished. But you know, when you look at laser companies, look their, their interest is not that small niche because it's not going to make them money. Yeah, um, they may sell a handful of, you know, for example, like in Australia, they may even sell three <laughs> in a given year. Why 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 should they do the R and D uh, for for that when when they can sell, for example, three hundred or even you know more? of smaller energy levels, a lower energy levels laser. That's where the money is, yeah? And unfortunately, when it comes to to lasers and energy devices, I can see that's where the uh, industry's heading, is more commercial. And the decision's basically a commercial decision.
0: Yeah, it's a business at the end of the day. (laughs) And final question, Devin, if someone was coming to see you with a lot of sun damage, for example, a typical kind of Brisbane skin, mm. would you choose laser or one of the deeper peels?
1: Uh, it's a hard one. I mean, I I still like I love doing chemical peels. absolutely love it. And I, I love doing the medium depth, yeah, medium to deep depth. Um, I still think the Jessner TCA peel, absolutely love it. The reason being is that they're much more relaxed, yeah, There's no loud noises, there's very little in the way of, I mean, I don't have to use eye protection. The whole theater's calm, there's no noise. (laughs) Maybe the Zimmer uh, if needed. But I think peels are still very underutilized, especially for mild to moderate damage. So the answer to your question is that for mild to moderate damage, I probably would say even fractional laser kit can be effective but chemical peels are certainly an option. for things with deep, deep pathology, whether it be skin cancer or pre-malignant cases, I think together with a huge amount of wrinkling, Possibly laser may have the edge. The only exception is the deep phenol peels, uh, which are coming off, I guess, new trend in the next next couple of years as well, because there's lots of papers in the US. Problem with the deep phenol peels is that you do need, that that can be cardiotoxic, so you need cardiac monitoring. So that one, I think it's, you have to look at the risk benefit ratio. So I still do phenol peels, deep phenol peels, but they're focal peels rather than global peels.
0: Yeah, and each, would you say pain and also downtime for the patient? Uh, I think,
1: well, well, p- pain is uh, is more painful with the lasers, presumably CO two laser. But I think in all my cases, I do it under sedation. Yeah, you know, light sedation. So things like to be given some, like either lorazepam or uh, valium, diazepam, together with pethidine, together with their zimaculor, together with uh, local anesthetic cream and local anesthetic blocks. So I think the laser is probably the more full on. And once again, it's, it's the anxiety of having. You know, lights, noises, lots of people in the theater, yeah, compared to chemical peels where it's a little bit more calm. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. No, it's horses for courses. And I think the lasers are, I I personally think, looking at the literature, well, probably safer, yeah, when we're looking at the side effects compared to things like deep peels. But deep peels, I think, in the current literature shows that it may have an advantage when it comes to more collagen regeneration
0: yeah fabulous well thank you so much for spending your morning with us Davin. it was great to hear your side of lasers the weird tarnished. wonderful my, my, my
1: tarnish side working with the industry for so long <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh it's good to hear all sides of everything <laughs> well yeah thank you again
1: no worries okay thanks guys
0: thanks what a great podcast interview Davin is so knowledgeable, so friendly. I could have spoken to him all day and he just loves sharing his knowledge, which is very, very um, lucky for us. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were, number one, Davin explained that the types of skin and treatments he performs will differ to his dermatology colleagues located in different states and continents. Davin being located in sunny Brisbane, he sees a lot of pigmentation and of course it makes sense because there's more sun. But something that often isn't considered is the blanket approach to skin care. As social media makes the world smaller, it can be easy to follow particular advice from someone online. Um, Just know that, say, for example, someone with a dry skin in Melbourne and Brisbane is going to require different ingredients and potentially different treatments. Perhaps this could be a future podcast episode. What do you think? Number two, Davin explained that the regulations in Australia are quite lax for laser. Just know that who you're going to see has extensive experience in not only the modality but also in risk mitigation and what to do if something does go wrong. And number three while Davin loves lasers he was very clear that they can't do everything and there has been a little bit of misinformation and marketing by the laser companies giving the illusion that one laser can treat dozens and dozens of concerns. And couple this with lasers being manufactured in a way to ensure safety, even for experienced technicians, what I may mean by this is lowering the energy levels, it's simply not the case that one laser can treat every concern. While you may get marginal improvement, if you have extensive pigmentation or concerns such as melasma, it's really important that you go to someone that is really experienced and they have a series of things in their toolkit that they can assist you with. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I love doing this with you every week. I hope you enjoy it as well. If you enjoyed listening, then please, please take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening to this. Put it on your stories. Tag us at dermhealth.co and it will help just spread the word about the education that we're doing here. So until next week, be skin powered.